Good morning again. If you would please turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. And while you are turning to Daniel chapter 4, I want to tell you about the best day of third grade. And it wasn't close. There's nothing else in the running for this. This was easily the best day of the entirety of my third grade year uh, growing up in Oklahoma. And I want you to know this is not one of those preacher stories. Uh, this actually happened. Okay, The way I'm telling it is how it happened. All right, when I was in third grade, I had a nemesis. Okay, there was a little girl in my class named Sarah, and she was my nemesis. She was ugly to me. We didn't like each other. Okay, and keep in mind, this is third grade when girls are pretty much useless, right? They have cooties, they're icky, uh, there's nothing really good between, you know, it's not until about sixth grade that girls start to have, you know, you know, you know. Okay, so this is in third grade, and we didn't like each other. I am sure I never did anything to bother her. Uh, she must have started it, but for whatever reason, we didn't like each other. And I vividly remember one day after school, uh, my mom was picking me up, and I got into my minivan, because that's how we rolled, right? And so I'm getting into my minivan to go home, and this little girl is walking by, leaving school. She's going to walk up to her car, which is a little ways up ahead, uh, and we're saying stuff back and forth to each other. I don't remember. Again, she must have started it, but I said something witty and, and great and really thoughtful in reply, and we're going back and forth. Okay, and as she's going to her car, as I'm getting into my car, she turns and sticks her tongue out at me as she's walking to her car, and she just keeps walking with her tongue out at me because she's just mean like that, right? The greatest part of the story, though, is as she was walking away, sticking her tongue out at me, she didn't see the speed limit sign right in front of her. And the exact moment that she turned back forward, she met that pole face first. Knocked her for a loop. Okay, Best day ever. The best stories are when the arrogant enemy gets it. Okay? Emperor, Emperor Palpatine is cast down. It's a great story. General Cornwallis surrenders. Great story. That cocky kid in the karate kid gets the smirk knocked off his face with the roundhouse kick. That was a great moment in a movie. Okay? Have you ever been somewhere, you ever had an experience in life where someone who is arrogant got it? You ever see a coworker or a classmate or a family member finally get what was coming to them? Have you ever seen the fall after the pride? You ever witnessed that? Okay, and it's all you can do not to throw a party right then and there. All of you are more mature than I am. That's not a thing for any of you. Okay. Well, here's the story of Daniel chapter 4. And one of the reasons this is such a great story is because we see the arrogant bad guy finally get what's coming to him. All right, one night... King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and his dream terrified him. Okay, and just in case you weren't here for the last few weeks or you don't know the story, King Nebuchadnezzar is the evil king who marched from Babylon to Jerusalem, leveled the city, and captured the people of God. Okay, he took God's people into Babylonian captivity, tried to make them part of his empire. Okay, there is no doubt in anyone's mind who is reading this story in Daniel for the first time who the bad guy is. It is Nebuchadnezzar, and we can't stand him. And so, for the second time in our story, 
Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and the dream bothers him. And also, for the second time in the book of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar summons all of his wise men, all of his magicians, his astrologers, everybody who's a court advisor, to see if they can't interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Again, for the second time in our story, none of the wise men can do it. So finally, they call on Daniel, our hero of the story, and he is able to interpret the dream for the king. Okay, here's the dream from Daniel chapter 4. Out in the middle of the land, there was a tree. And this was no ordinary tree. This was the biggest, most strong, most beautiful tree that anybody had ever seen. It had beautiful leaves with abundant fruit. This was the most impressive, impressive tree, so impressive that all the animals in the land could come and sit under the shade of this tree, could eat the leaves and eat the fruit. This was the tree. But then, an angel came down from above, announced that the tree would be cut down, that the fruit of the tree would be scattered, the leaves would be scattered, all that would be left was a stump in the ground. And then the angel says in verse 15, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Okay? That's the dream. And so Daniel interprets the dream. He goes to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, O king, I wish that this applied to your enemies and not to you. But unfortunately, O king, you are that tree. And in spite of all your glory, in spite of your majesty, in spite of the fact that you are the most powerful man on earth, God is going to humble you. Okay, notice verse 24. It says, This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all, over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone He wishes. And we keep reading the story. We see that's exactly what happened. Skip down to verse 28. It says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, okay, and I want you to notice the arrogance of what the king says next. As he's walking in his palace, he says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone He wishes. And that's exactly what happened. Okay, for seven times, which is probably seven years, The king of the world's greatest empire lived like an animal, literally eating grass, until at the end of it, his mind was restored to him. He becomes king again. He reigns over his kingdom of Babylon, but he's much more humble reigning the second time around. The end. It's an interesting story. Um, This is a bizarre story. This isn't one that makes it into all the children's Bibles like some of our other stories. 
And it's easy for us to read this story and cheer that God humbled the bad guy, right? And it's easy for us to say, all right, the arrogant king finally got what was coming to him. Okay, but I think there's more to the story than that. I think there are several key things that you and I can learn from this story. Okay, if you're taking notes, write this down. This is number one. That is that we become prideful when we take credit for God's work. Okay, you and I become prideful anytime we start to think that it's about us, that it's about what we have done, that we have somehow accomplished some great thing. Okay, I know that I've told you this story once before, but it's such a perfect story, and I thought of it again this week because this last week was Valentine's Day. Okay, so this story happened exactly one year ago. Right, and it was about 10 o'clock at night. We had just put the kids to sleep. Everyone was settled. Rachel and I were getting ready to go to sleep ourselves. When Rachel suddenly turns to me and she says, tomorrow Luke has to take a shoebox to school decorated to put all of his Valentines in. Okay, how many of you have done 10 o'clock projects for your kids after they're already in bed? Okay, you've been there before, right? So I look at Rachel and I say, awesome. How long have we known about this? A couple weeks? Okay, great. Let's do it tonight. That's fine. All right, so we stayed up, and we made a really cool box. All right, I don't want to brag, uh, but our box was the coolest box in all of first uh, grade special ed, okay? We made the best box. All right, I put hashtags on the side of, like, hashtag love, okay, because I'm clever, right? It was cool. Great box. We made an awesome, wonderful box. The first time that Luke saw that box was the next morning as I'm kicking him out of the car at the car drop-off place. Okay, we didn't want him to see it because he would mess it up or touch it, right? I didn't want him messing up my box. Okay, so as he's getting out of the car, I give him this box, put it in his hands and say, take this to class with you. So Luke is walking through the hall, going to his class, carrying this amazing box. Okay, and all of the teachers keep saying, oh, Luke, look at your box. That's wonderful. You made such a beautiful box. That's great. That's wonderful. That's awesome. Okay, so that little arrogant kid walks into his classroom and boldly proclaims to all of the students there, look what I made. Okay. I want you to notice again the arrogant line from King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, is not this the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? But we as the readers of this story know better. The message of Scripture is clear. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to conquer the promised land. He did it because Israel violated the covenant between Israel and God. God brought up Nebuchadnezzar. God gave him his power. God gave him all the majesty he possessed. And God would bring down Nebuchadnezzar. None of the great accomplishments of King Nebuchadnezzar belonged to him. All of them belonged to God. But what's our tendency? We hold something in our hand that someone else has done for us, and we think, look what I have done. You know, earlier in Scripture, God had to give Israel the warning that when they finally got to the promised land, after God took them out of Egypt using the ten plagues, remember that story, right? Okay, God, through His mighty power, brought Israel out of Egypt, gave them a land that they didn't plant any of the vineyards, they didn't plant any of the crops, okay, they didn't conquer that promised land, God conquered it for them, right? The walls of Jericho didn't tumble because they pulled them down, the walls of Jericho fell because God brought them down. 
God told Israel, when you get to that land, and when you look at the good land, and you look at all the stuff that you didn't do, your tendency is going to say, look what we did. He says, as soon as you do that, you've lost it. And as soon as you do that, you will forget the Lord your God. And the way that God will remind them of His power is He will have to conquer them again. A big part of the reason that you and I take communion every week is because it is to remind us that we didn't save ourselves. It's to remind us that the reason we get to be in God's presence is not because we were so wonderful and great or did anything, but because God did the work for us. You know, whenever I preach a sermon and then I get lots of praise at the end because I stand at the back door and don't let you leave unless you at least say something to me on the way out, Okay, but often I get lots of praise, right? And people say, oh, those were really good points that you made. And I think, yeah, I made some really good points. And then I can just imagine God saying, yeah, when I wrote that book, I thought they were pretty good points too. Right? It's easy for us to take credit for what God does. And I don't know how that applies to, to your job and what you do in your normal day, but I know that it does. Okay, every talent that you have is a gift from God. Every opportunity that you have been given is a gift from God. Everything in your life that has worked out for your benefit is a gift from God. So ask yourself this morning, where in life am I particularly prideful? Do I spend enough time thanking God for His gifts, or do I spend a lot more time taking credit for God's work? Okay? All right, here's number two. Number two is that every knee will bow. Okay? Every knee will bow. Uh, one of the big arguments that I have in my house right now with my three-year-old uh, happens every night about between 8.15 and 8.30 when I say, Sam, it's time for you to go upstairs and get in your bed. All right, And then he always says, but dad, I don't want to. Okay? And I keep telling him that we don't negotiate with toddlers or terrorists, right? It's kind of the same, the same thing. Okay? And never once in those arguments have I said, oh, well, I didn't know you saw it that way, Sam. Well, if you want to stay up tonight, then why don't you just stay up all night? You don't have to sleep. Okay? No, that's not the way it works, is it? No, when you have a toddler and they argue with you about going to bed, what happens is it may take a little while longer than you intended it for, but eventually that toddler is going to bed right? You are going to win that one every single time, or at least you should, right? Eventually, they have to sleep, right? Here's the thing. You might be able to shake your fist at God for a while. You might be able to claim that you will never bow down before him. You can deny God's existence. You can pretend to be your own Lord, or you can try to serve some other God, but eventually, every knee will bow before God Almighty, The only question is whether you're going to bow down by your own choice or whether God will take away that choice and make you bow down before him. But you will bow down before your creator. Notice Romans 14, 11. Paul says this. He says, it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. All right, I want you to see at the very end of this story in Daniel chapter 4, how remarkable this is. This is one of the only times uh, in the Old Testament, there's only a handful of times that a Gentile gets to write. 
Okay, that a Gentile gets to put their own words into the story in their own hand. And it looks like most of Daniel 4 is Nebuchadnezzar writing this account. And notice how this story ends in his own words. Verse 34. It says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Just think about how remarkable it is that you have in your Bible a paragraph from a pagan king who conquered the world saying, I acknowledge that the God of Israel is the God over all. Okay, and this is important for a couple of reasons. Not only is this important that we see everyone, even a Nebuchadnezzar, will eventually acknowledge God, okay, but this is also a message for the Israelites reading this book. Okay, again, remember, the first readers of this book are Israelites living at the end of the time of exile, wondering, is the God of Israel still God? And Daniel responds over and over again, yes. God will eventually win every battle. The forces of this world might rage against him for a while, but eventually, every knee will bow. All right, number three. Your story is powerful. Okay? We've already looked at the end of the story in chapter four, but I want us to back up. Look at the beginning. Look at the way this story starts. Again, noticing that this is in Nebuchadnezzar's own words. He says, To the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Okay, and then Nebuchadnezzar proceeds to tell the story of how he lost his mind, lived in a field for a while, and then eventually was restored. Okay, it's a powerful story. It's hard to argue with someone's experience. Because here's the thing. I can argue against your opinion all day long. Right? You can go on Facebook for about 15 minutes and find people who are locked in a continual argument arguing opinions with each other. Right? Okay, there's a reason I'm not getting on Facebook nearly as often as I used to because it tends to be what we do is we argue with each other. We argue lots of opinions. You know what you can't argue with? Someone's personal story. When Nebuchadnezzar says... Here's where I was, here's what God did to me, and here's where I am now. You can't argue with that. So here's where I am. I think if we're going to reach people around us for Jesus, if we're going to reach people for his kingdom, we're not going to get there by arguing with them. We're not going to get there by saying, okay, I have all this truth, and you're wrong about all this stuff, and let me argue with you and show you why I'm right and you're wrong. I don't think we're going to move a whole lot of people into God's kingdom doing that. I think instead, if we start with, 
here's where I was, here's what God has done for me, and here's where I am now, that's a powerful story. So my question for us this morning is, do you know your story? Are you ready to tell people around you at work, at school, wherever it is that you are, here's what God has done for me? That matters. That's powerful. Do you know how to tell others the story of what Jesus has done for you? Okay? You don't have to know how to, defend, how to defend everything in the Bible. You don't have to be able to explain all the deep theological mysteries of the universe. All you need to know to preach the gospel is that you were lost and now you're found. All right. At this time in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, during the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. We would love the opportunity to talk with you or pray with you about anything that's going on in your life uh, during this song. This is a time for us as the church to be here for you. And before we sing that song, I want to speak a word of blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.